Welcome to Season 3 of Purposeful Empathy. My name is Anita Novak, and this show is all about amplifying the voices of people around the globe who believe the world needs more empathy and are doing something about it. This episode was brought to you by Grand Huron International, an on-demand coaching provider for individuals and companies. Thanks for watching. Enjoy the show. Welcome to a new episode of Purposeful Empathy. Today, I'm joined by Amanda Letterman, who is a licensed psychotherapist in Montreal, who's had clinical interest in the erotic dynamics of relationships for over a decade. As a McGill and Columbia University grad, Amanda has pioneered what she calls erotic empathy, which is an approach to therapy and relationships that helps cultivate sustainable erotic intimacy that welcomes discrepant needs, wants, and perspectives during erotic moments. She believes that developing the skill of erotic empathy, we stand to have more gratifying sexual experiences, more deeply fulfilling relationships, and address an often neglected area of mental health. Her work has been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Psychology Today, Men's Health, Vogue, and others. Welcome to the show, Amanda. So cool to be talking about empathic or erotic empathy. It's, uh, you know, I've spent 10 years studying empathy and in the landscape of empathy, I've not come across this. So this was so exciting and I really, really look forward to our conversation. So let's start like at a really simple place and then we'll go deep, 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 deep. Um, what is your framing of empathy? How do you understand empathy? So just as a baseline and how is erotic empathy different from plain old empathy? Yeah. Uh, I mean, empathy, you know, is the essentially the bread and butter of, you know, client centered therapy. When you become a therapist, it's, it's so, um, uh, you know, we differentiate between compassion and empathy. Empathy as the ability to to really step into another person's perspective, to just try on what it might be like to be them in, in a given moment. Um, and compassion, you know, we differentiate in therapy because you don't want to end up pitying. You don't want to end up in a place of sympathy um, with someone in their struggle or in their suffering because that's ultimately a power dynamic. You know, you're suffering and I'm not. So that's that's my understanding of empathy. And how is erotic empathy different? So again, even starting at the training of therapists, um, erotic empathy, I believe is worthy of, of differentiating, of distinguishing because it's so well known that as soon as somebody tar- starts talking about something sexual, we tend to think about ourselves. We tend to become a little bit um, uh, vulnerable. You know, people immediately reflect upon their own personal lives when, when people mention something about sexuality. So, and considering that in, in the average psychology program, there are no courses in intimacy or sexuality, we have little training to navigate that onslaught of feeling. So I've always, I, I believe that if you differentiate erotic empathy from empathy, then you may take an extra um, interest in fortifying that capacity to, to dialogue eroticism in your therapy sessions especially not as a sex therapist when you have mainstream therapists whose clients are expecting to to be able to dialogue their erotic identity at conflicts in their sexual lives and their relationships they want to be able to mention sexual acts and not make a therapist uncomfortable you know most of my clients are coming to me because they could they could sense that their therapist was not this was out of their realm for instance you know, it's so fascinating. I'm just listening to you say that you, when you're doing your studies, you, you don't even 
cover a course on this when isn't the stat like the reason for relationships failing one of three big things finances children and sex you'd think that it would actually have a bigger role but yet I mean that's the taboo of sex right isn't that yeah the taboo uh and essentially the sort of prudishness of our culture, you know, that sex is expected and you know you have to do it once you're married or, or, you know, it could be a reason for divorce. But at the same time, people relegate the skill set of talking about sex um, to to just a, a discussion of communication in general without ever talking about sex explicitly. You know, we euphemize it like crazy. We talk about sleeping together. We talk about intimacy but we all know that intimacy can be not sexual at all and sexually sexuality can be not very intimate. Yeah. Okay, so before we kind of like dig deep into the work that you do, I'd be really curious to know what got you here. So could you share the backstory and why you were compelled to kind of enter this space of, of therapy? Yeah. Um, well, you know, I've always just uh, taken an interest in um, from probably, oh gosh, I don't even know. Um, <laughs> I could drop random details of my life. I worked for Ms. Magazine when I was 20 as an intern um, in LA um, at Gloria Steinem and, and, you know, really valued that experience. I always took an interest in women's health, women's issues as an undergrad. Um, you know, my late teens, early 20s, I was very um, uh, proud to be part of a, you know, touch football community at the end of my high school. I played uh, football. Uh, you know, I really valued the idea of women's health. And then interestingly, as an intern in graduate school, I worked with homeless men. So I, I, I wanted to sort of balance out my, you know, in those days, very binary view of gender, obviously, to, to sort of include the experience of, of the counterpart of heterosexual relationship. And as I studied men, I understood that, you know, if men don't want to be vulnerable and women are, are taught to require vulnerability for intimacy, how is it that we make this possible at all? <laughs> so yeah. um, really right in my undergraduate um, uh, at Columbia, I had amazing support from professors to support my, my curiosity about eroticism and sexuality and to study it whenever there was an elective um, assignment. And, uh, and then now over the years, I've cultivated, um, you know, a an ability to to dialogue this in a therapeutic way for my clients and to sort of approach it cognitively by taking courses here and there kind of off the cuff in, in very um, non-academic settings. You know, I think to be a sex therapist like um, practitioner, you have to take an interest in putting yourself in the environments that your clients are going to talk about if you want to be comfortable in them. You know, so Montreal has an amazing burlesque scene and, you know, attending things and, and having conversations with people. Um, I can recall fond conversations with, you know, um, drag queens in bathrooms and, and, you know, burlesque dancers um, when they thought I was one and tried to unbring me up on the stage. And I was like, no, no, no. Um, so, you know, th these really fun experiences that have really paved the way for me to to be comfortable um, really helping people um, in their intimate lives. And I believe help families, you know, in doing that. This is, this is my this is my jam. I, I tend to joke I'm cheaper than a, than a divorce lawyer, so try me first. You know. <laughs> um, so just I'm curious uh, at cocktail parties or dinner parties, you must be quite polarizing. It must be like, <laughs> oh, I don't want to have any conversation with you. I'm not prepared to go there. Or like, like here, I have some questions. Can you give me a freebie while we're sitting here over our our boeuf bourguignon? Um, is that happening? What have you noticed, you know, just as you navigate the world as a sex therapist, how, how has that shown up for you? 
Yeah, I think I'm a fun party favor, I guess, for, for some people's questions. And, and more often than not, what I really, what I notice, uh, you know, not to like put a serious tone on it, but what I notice is people need these conversations. And people are always shocked by how much more they divulge than they expected to, you know, and, and I think um, that's what I mean by, you know, even therapists don't necessarily go there. They, they just, you know, people are, are, you know, euphemizing these conversations. And then people who even had satisfying therapy don't necessarily really address that issue of arousal and pleasure and the flow of desire they're hoping for in their relationships. Okay, now I promise we're going to get there. But one last little question. Yeah. So you as a therapist, you know, you were trained to be empathic. But now you've been practicing and you've been practicing in probably one of the most intimate kinds of conversations possible. What have you learned about being empathic as a result and how has that changed the way you are in the world outside of your practice? I think personally, um, well, first of all, I have a, you know, almost 11 month old. And after um, treating women in postpartum sexuality, so often or you know over the last decade or so I I I, I'm at an advantage um as Amanda as a new mom because my work has totally humbled the you know the fears of um the average new mom like I I'm very aware of what this is going to feel like and, and and you know how getting back into feeling erotic in a new and different way for example and all those kinds of things um is without a doubt been informed by my work. You know, I really, I'm living right now what I've taught. And when you, when you're teaching something, when you're, when you're um, uh, a clinician in these areas, you're pulling from thousands of people's experiences, right? You're, you're never speaking about yourself. You're speaking about the data, which is more important than your own personal anecdotes. But in that being said, I'm now validating the research every day in my personal life. And it's, it's really powerful. It's, it's amazing. It's really amazing. I'm surprised at how true some of the things that I've learned are. And I'm also always feeling, why didn't we teach this? Why don't we teach people these things? You know, the fact that doctors are not recommending to um, women at the six week mark to masturbate before penetration with their partners so that they know what to expect and so that they can gauge their own sensations. Instead say, okay, six weeks, you can go home and have sex now. So now somebody else can drive something into your vagina when you don't know what it's going to feel like. You know, this is mind blowing to me that the directionality of pleasure and agency and all those types of concepts, of course I could talk about that forever, um, are, are not better cared for in our society. Um, you know, so I think every life stage will bring about new passions for me in this field because I'm, I'm so aware of, of that, which isn't talked about and, and how I'm willing to talk about anything. <laughs> yeah. And it sounds like I'm, I'm really excited for you because you can be a pioneer, like you could blast this open, you know? So anyways, that's, that's, that's great news. It sounds like you've got a pipeline of work for a while. Um, <laughs> what led you to develop your approach to sex therapy? Okay. So, uh, you know, there's no question that as I worked with couples, there was one trend that stood out for me really, really overtly. Um, it was the fact that people reject their partners, even when they actually want sex. So the fact that when, when your partner's initiating and you say, no, 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 I feel gross. What you're doing, even if you have an interest in have in being erotic, being interpersonally sexual, you turn down the person for fear of repulsing them in your own experience of yourself. Right? And that's, does, does that make sense? 
Yeah. Okay. So uh, tell me if I'm wrong or unpack it or do what you need to do with this, but is it because you have body image issues or you feel like your breath smells or like that kind of stuff? It could be any of those things from tiny things to big lifelong battles. What they are ultimately is distinctly a lack of erotic empathy for your partner. Because if your partner is willing to initiate and be intimate, uh, be erotically intimate with you and get all up in your stuff, you could never possibly imagine why anybody would want to get all up, using really clinical language here, um, really be intimate with you. Um, and so you reject them because you don't take into account their perspective and their desires for you. Then what that is, is a lack of erotic empathy. So, so what do you, years, go ahead. So over the years, what I noticed was when people would tell me, uh, you know, I, yeah, I, I just, we, I just said, you know, no, or I rolled to the other side of the bed and I, you know, I pushed them away last time, you know, he tried and I say, or, or she tried and I say, well, were you in the mood? Did you notice any kind of genital, genital awareness or, you know, desire, any craving, yearning either that day or, or right at that moment? And they'll say, oh yeah, but I, I just, I just couldn't. And those couldn'ts, are about not being able to transfer the focus of what they're feeling about themselves into really honoring what their partner feels for them in that moment. And the reason why that's important is not because their partner is more important than them, but because by transferring the focus onto what arouses them about their partner or to transferring the focus from their insecurities and their fear of repulsing or of, you know, it not going well or whatever onto the um those those delicious sensations that could escalate into pleasure those those little things that we could choose to place our attention on that make it begin make the excitement build that that um hesitation to refocus or that in a, uh, unwillingness to refocus attention leads to the demotivation of sex of, of sexuality in a couple okay so, so let me tend- yeah go ahead no, no, no. Okay, so I want to make this uh, real. I'll right? take your yeah. you, you, you just gave me the example of, you know, a, a woman postpartum, okay, who's maybe still breastfeeding or not, who knows, and is exhausted and feels very strange about her body. And uh, her husband, partner, you know, initiates and she's like, no, thank you. Now, I'm going to take a guess. You worked at Miss Magazine. So you're like, you know, feminist, pro-woman, empowerment, all that kind of stuff. And what I just heard you say is empathize with what your partner wants and find a way to meet him is in this instance, let's say him where he's at. Okay. But I'm imagining like a, 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 a chorus of women saying, but like, I'm exhausted. Mm-hmm. So how is this, how is this process also meeting the needs of a woman without feeling like, oh my God, I've had so much demand on my body all day and now I still have to put out? So the, the key thing here is, first of all, this is not all cases in general, right? This is a case where I ask a woman, do you feel that you have a desire to be sexual? And sexual is different from erotic. Sexual is one body. Do you have a desire to pursue orgasm for yourself? And often they will say yes. I don't do it often, let's say, because I don't have the time or the energy, but I do. I want to be a sexual person. You know, I want to be enacting these things in my life, but they don't have the desire to be erotic, which is that interpersonal evoking of desire between two people. 
Okay. So in order to sustain, to, to create these erotic conditions, they have to speak up about what they need. So if your partner, if a male is pursuing a sexual encounter with a woman, right, with a female, in that situation, yes, we are socialized to think sex is something that we do for men and it shouldn't, you know, and it's, so I'll be damned if I'm going to, you know, just give him more right now when I'm touched out from my day, right? And so my, the, the refocusing thing is about firstly, sex is of equal importance to all people involved. It is never something that we actually do for anybody else. Ideally. So, ideally. So the refocusing is about thinking firstly, is there a sensation that you can choose to enjoy with your partner? I'm not saying sex. I'm saying if he, you know, if he just said, close your eyes, I'm going to rub your foot. There's no expectations. We're not having sex, but I, I think you deserve to just relax into feeling something nice somewhere on the body that you haven't been touched all day. So he starts rubbing your foot and you say, okay, I'm going to try to get into this, right? I'm going to, because I know I want to for me, but I'm not able to access erotic conditions just yet. So you start with a sensation like that, for example, right? And then, you know, potentially, lo and behold, as I hear from, from many women, when there is no expectation and they buy into the idea that they don't have to have sex for him if they don't feel like it, but they begin to relax into a sensation, it's not necessarily, um, not every time and maybe not quickly, but they will begin to experience a genital arousal, a genital awareness that may lead them to want to pursue a different kind of pleasure, right, from the one that was started. And the other thing that I, I tell people all the time is sex is not penetration or nothing, right? So if you say, you know what, I want to have a lazy orgasm. I'm going to use my vibrator while we make out. Is that okay with you? You know, and you can pleasure yourself. And that's what we, that's what I feel like I can do tonight. Then by all means, you're still going to look at each other and, you know, giggle to yourselves about the fact that this is fun. If you're so, if you're so open to it. So obviously a precondition to sort of moving across your approach is communication and vulnerability. Um, I, so I want to talk about that, but then I also think, you know, we've talked, we've given an example that is gendered around sort of the female being um, sought after and then what she can do. I wonder if you could also give an example from the other direction, um, you know, that could be useful or insightful, and then we'll come back to the earlier question. Certainly. I mean, body image issues are not a female problem, you know, are not a female bodied issue. Um, we, I can tell you that there are a lot, particularly since COVID, there are a lot of people who are feeling they're just not able to enjoy um, how they experience themselves, right? They're not feeling particularly erotically amusing or uh, uh, to be a particularly erotic muse. They're, they're really not feeling, you know, sexy. And if you don't feel sexy or confident in that area, it can be really hard to receive sexual attention, right? If you're having trouble buying into the idea that you are arousing, then again, you're going to have a lack of erotic empathy for your partner. And it's going to take that effort to focus on allowing yourself to focus on what arouses you instead of focusing on the fact that you're, you don't think you're worthy of erotic attention from your partner. Right. So every, uh, the thing I kind of, I tell everyone is regardless of gender and particularly with, with men actually, is that when you're, um, that all the thoughts you experience during a sexual encounter have to be arousing for you to maintain arousal. So if, you know, the joke I have with men, and I said this on a men's show is if you're hard on yourself, you won't get hard. Or you won't stay hard. So if you're afraid of losing your erection or you're, you know, hating on yourself for having grown a bit of a gut over COVID, you know, um, and you're, you're thinking about those things, well, that's not going to keep the blood flowing to your penis. 
And so it's really important to really um, to value that you deserve the erotic sensations. You deserve to relax into pleasure with your partner, whatever that may look like, particularly as you get back into it, if there's been a lull and to practice that the, the, the refocusing that mindful um, this is sort of a mindfulness based cognitive approach in, in a lot of ways. And, and that the mindful focusing is something that I'll start in session. Um, you know, I'll, I'll recommend that people, you know, take two objects, for example, you know, like you've got a phone and you have a pen. And if you put them down on the, on your table, six inches apart from one another, and you only look at one of them, how the light hits, looking at the perimeter of the object, um, maybe how your hand looks holding it. Um, it will not be long before you forget the other object exists. And this other object is body hate, self-criticism, the things you have to do tomorrow. You know, that really focusing on, on, on that which you can momentarily find pleasurable, enjoyable, you know, can you, you can relax into choosing to enjoy a minute is the difference between being able to enjoy sex and not enjoy sex. It's the difference between being able to get aroused and not get aroused. So, okay, great. Going back to that earlier question, I'm trying to imagine like either the people who are reaching out to you are already semi-prepared to talk about stuff, you know, but even so, I mean, I imagine there's a bit of an on-ramp and an unfolding that happens as people become ever more vulnerable with their own erotic dreams and fascinations how do you do that? What's your process? And, 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 and how, what do you offer to the, to the people who are coming to your sessions, the couples or otherwise, who are also learning the skill of unpacking and dialoguing between themselves? Yes. So, um, well, I, I um, in January 2020, I published something called the RSVP, which is the Relationship Shared Values Primer. So it's an RSVP to the couples therapy. And I introduced these four concepts through that intervention, um, usually in the second meeting. First meeting, uh, of course, is sort of a, tell me a little bit about what brings you here, get an overview of the situation, establish some goals, um, you know, talk about some recent uh, moments of significance in the relationship that got them to where they are, um, whatever involves the first meeting. And the second meeting, I'll usually uh, introduce the RSVP. And, and that, that, what that does is, is bring about the skill sets we're going to work on, the mindful attunement and acceptance um, of that which each person brings to, to the relationship, to each moment. Um, erotic empathy as a concept, that, that buy-in to the fact that if your partner wants to be with you, you know, try to, to sort of accept that and to look at that behaviorally speaking, of course, is broken down. Um, I, I talk about um, a few different concepts in that, in that um, introduction which also gives us a vocabulary. That's the thing too, right? Couples don't necessarily know how to really talk about these things or how to have healthy conflicts in uh, and around sexuality. So this, this really gives a vocabulary that's shared and kind of gives everyone a starting point. And, and moving into it, we, I then typically do a, um, a meeting individually with each person. Oftentimes people don't necessarily want to talk about their past relationships and, you know, significant fantasies or pleasures that may have come about um, in, you know, if they're experiencing jealousy and, and, and difficulties in the moment they come to meet with me, we may not want to talk about that last relationship that was super hot in front of the other mm-hmm. person. But I do want to hear about those experiences from each person to be able to help craft an approach um, that's uh, erotically attuned to each of their internal fantasy worlds that they can then integrate. The erotic empathy also really takes into account that each person has a distinctly unique experience, uh, sexually speaking. 
right? When people come into couples therapy and you say, so how was the last time you had sex? They're going to look at each other and kind of go, it's okay, it's okay. You know, nod, nod their heads, shrug their shoulders. And so I got no information whatsoever because I have no idea which parts were actually important for both of them separately. And by, so erotic empathy seeks to really um, it, um, it bring about the clear, transparent, and also very equipped understanding of each person's unique experience during the sex they're having. So it is important to understand that both people in every sexual encounter, you know, all people in every sexual encounter have a, um, completely different images in their minds they, of how they're each received. I may be a, you know, kind of a regular little brunette, you know, Jewish girl. And then, but to my husband, hopefully I'm a, I'm a little pinup, you know, I'm a curvy little straight out of the, uh, you know, 1950s cartoons. And that, that's what I'm kind of hoping, but I have no idea, right? Ultimately, the inner workings of, of another person, you know, and that's what this is really about. It's about facilitating a safe conversation in which each person creates their, their relaxed understanding of what the other person wants. And, and that's where erotic empathy really becomes an educated approach, you know, a skilled strategy for sustainable intimacy is knowing that how you see your partner is totally different from how they see themselves and how they see you is totally different from how you see yourself. Right. Because, you know, if you define, oh, that was great sex, it's mm -hmm. because that person with whom you just engaged in that great sex, like satisfied you in a way that made you qualify the sex as great. Right. So the metaphor that comes to mind is when you like, for example, for shopping for a birthday gift for a friend, it's you don't buy the gift that you think you want to have, which would make for a great gift for a friend. You actually imagine what your friend would find a really awesome gift. Right. And that's what the goal of empathic or erotic empathy is. Right. Yeah. I put in 2017, I put an article on medium called I am carrot cake, a lesson in erotic empathy. And um, that's what kind of served as the first online burst for the concept. Um, I am carrot cake, uh, came about because my husband likes carrot cake and my line is, you know, keep vegetables out of my dessert. I don't, I'm not interested. So, um, the, I, I am carrot cake, meaning I, you know, he can like something that I don't necessarily understand, um, his liking for entirely. And I can be interested in how to, you know, um, get it for him or, or sort of be, you know, I've, I've made him carrot cake stuff. I've um, made these really great cookies one time, like little sandwich cakes, little sandwich cookies of carrot cake with icing in the middle. I don't think I had more than one after I made them, but I was thrilled that he enjoyed them. And so the idea here is if you can empathize with what your partner is aroused by, right, by if you can get into that, and I do encourage folks who are listening to who are interested to read that article, it's particularly postpartum, because it really has this, um, you know, it, it cultivates the essence of you don't have to be turned on by yourself, per se, to still be worthy of pleasure yourself, and, and ultimately not have your lack of arousal for yourself at times interfere with your right to pleasure. So is erotic empathy only a couple's thing? And is it only for heterosexual couples? Can you just kind of speak to that for a bit? Sure. No, not at all. I mean, having erotic empathy for yourself, again, sometimes is the, um, is the opener to being able to really enjoy yourself as a sexual being, uh, once again. So I can, I've worked with many single people who, when they say, you know, 
I want to understand my position as a sexual person in the world as a single person. You know, I, they, they say masturbation sort of makes them feel shameful at times because they, they, they don't really make room for it. They kind of just do it to get it out of the way every once in a while. And so um, I think really the truth is eroticism needs to be part of a self-care plan, you know, choosing to, to give respect and honor that your needs for um, appropriate, like we're talking appropriate physiological seduction of yourself can make a, a huge difference in your mental health. So, you know, it's, it's not enough to just sort of quickly rub one up, you know, before bed kind of thing. And, and so you did it. And so you don't feel a, a genital, you know, itching. It's really important to take the time just as you would hope a partner would with yourself and to feel inspired and, and, discover what is inspiring to you specifically from an erotic standpoint. Don't look at garbage mainstream, you know, garbage porn, I call it just the, don't go to the vending machine, you know, look at the good stuff. Um, I always recommend Erica Lust's work, but there are others too. Erica with a K, EricaLust.com. She creates beautiful, erotically inspiring films that are not just the genital smashing images for no reason. I mean, you really want to look at stuff that has an erotic narrative where there's a reason why these people are having sex that turns you on. Right. That's a, that's a big part of erotic empathy as well is looking at the pathways to arousal and really understanding what that means for people and not just expecting that because you're both in the room or because you have yourself at night with a vibrator that you're supposed to be turned on. It, this is really we're all psychologically more complex than ever before when it comes to sexuality. You know, porn has given us stories in which to be uh, around which to be aroused. And so when there's no story in our personal lives, um, then sometimes there can be a lack of erotic inspiration. So take the time to really notice what arouses you. There will be themes, taboos, all kinds of stuff. Um, and uh, that's the blog I'm working on right now, actually, is the, the fantasies that have emerged uh, from COVID. People are surprised that when they're single, why are they fantasizing home invasions? You know, and I just say, hey, you're not meeting anybody. It sounds like a plausible meeting story if it ends up pleasurable in the end, you know. And um, so we're, we're talking about all kinds of bizarre, to some people, um, fantasies and, and why they are actually arousing. So being single, um, unfortunately, is often a devaluing of one's sexual life because we're socialized as um, all men, men and women, all people of all genders are socialized to think that their sexuality is only worthy if it's in the context of someone else. And mm. that's of course um, not true. And mental health benefits are that if you value yourself and really engage with, um, you know, great pleasure, you're actually going to cheer yourself up. You're actually going to feel um, a bit more of an arrow, so vitality within your life. So are there ever any limits to erotic empathy? I'm thinking like, you know, some people may really appreciate S&M and others, you know, with even within a couple may not. And really like there's no, there's no mm. possibility for fusion when there's, you know, extremes. Yes. I think that um, truthfully what I have seen as challenging, um, you know, as uh, what I seem to be sort of an obstacle ultimately to people's erotic connection um, is when there is something a little bit, you know, less mainstream, um, you know, a, a scatophilia for, or something like something that involves um, excrements and fetish. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, that kind of stuff. Um, and a person who, first of all, just, you know, draws a hard line. No. Um, plus a little bit of a history of trauma or, or desire, you know, or um, fear around boundaries. So if somebody wants something from someone that is both um, completely unarousing and also, um, you know, infringes upon their boundaries, I don't, I think that's, that's an impossibility. 
I do believe that trauma always informs these situations. And I expect that one out of two, if not both people that I work with have some degree of trauma, sexual or otherwise. I think that's important for many um, uh, therapists, psychotherapists to, to integrate into their work is the understanding that there, that trauma is um, small T or big T traumas, you know, are part of our human infrastructure. And, and we need to take that into account where, wherever eroticism could bloom because it is, it's a crossing and, you know, melding of boundaries. And so erotic empathy sometimes is a far later stage in the game when first and foremost, the people need to build, you know, an emotional security and safety um, mm. within one another in within which they can then take vulnerable risks um, of erotic, um, of an erotic nature, right? I mean, even experimenting with dominance and, and surrender and those kinds of things has to come about where there's unconditional respect, um, mm. which I, I always say that if you want, un, you know, limitless mutual objectification in a safe relationship across time, you really want to be able to see each other as, as sexually gratifying long-term, you have to have absolutely unconditional respect within one another. And as much as love can be unconditional, there's no such thing as unconditional relationships, right? So this is erotic, having erotic empathy for one another cannot exist in abusive relationships. It cannot exist where there are a fundamental lack of support, you know, in those, those postpartum situations, if the guy's really not doing very much and she feels very, very alone, there may be, you know, a, you know, uh, for her own personal well-being, the boundary of, of you know, uh, holding sex as collateral, so to speak, until she feels cared for. That is unfortunate because she deserves sexual gratification for herself. She deserves to feel erotic and 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 to have that um, seduction as a part of her well-being. So that would be negotiated um, within session too. So then clearly some couples might come to you for sex therapy and then you're really kind of engaging in a whole other like trauma therapy or marital therapy that's like way out, like it's, it's not about the sex at all initially, you've got to get that stuff done, that groundwork done. What we do value is that sex is, is there to, is a, intimacy and erotic intimacy specifically is a goal for them. And if that's the, if that's the goal as a couple, then that's where we're gearing ourselves towards. And that's what we're looking at as measurable, um, uh, success. So what we're really going to look at is, is incorporating the safety of touch and the boundaries around, you know, personal space and, and intimate give with no agenda, you know, and those kind that'll be very much built into the treatment plan. We're not just going to help them fight better for sessions on end. And I don't mean to put down you know, communicative couple therapy, but ultimately sometimes where you're not focusing with a parallel running, um, you know, experience of enjoyment uh, along the line of sensory enjoyment together, then you can get lost in just, in just refereeing um, uh, to, you know, <laughs> forever. Yeah. My clients, I don't keep them forever. So, okay. Earlier when you were talking about mental health, I have also had a bit of an aha moment where you know, I'm a certified coach and there's a very famous pie with eight slices. Maybe sometimes there are more, but it's kind of like, you know, you want your life to have all of these things relatively high to live a well-balanced life. And so, you know, you've got your family and your friends and your house and your professional career. And sex is not one of those pie slices. And you are make, you are an advocate saying, let's create a pie slice for sex because it is that important to us as humans and that important to us for our mental health. Is that what you're saying? I think that when people get married it, with the assumption that they're going to have a sexual life with this person and that derails, they don't feel very well. 
So it's not so much that it's necessarily essential for every human being per se, but when you sign up to get married, you know, you sign up to marriage, you're making a promise to value each other, yourself and the other person, you know, um, the, the combination of the three, you're, you're choosing to value the combination of the two of you and each of you separately as erotic beings um, across time for the rest of your lives together. And I think people really forget that. They start thinking that, you know, all they want is sex, you know, that kind of that, that sex negative rhetoric that we have from, from our upbringings or from cult, from the sex negative world. Um, instead of viewing sex as a positive, as, as a, you know, delicious divine right to enjoyment, to, to pleasure, to, to feeling well with one another. You know, I tell people that even if your person is provided for you, um, once all the jewelry's off and the lights are off and you can't see the house, the cars, the furniture, the trips, and you get into bed alongside one another, you better feel like that's where you want to be. Mm. You're alone and with no other things with the lights off that you can relax in each other's company and feel that when you're touched, you, you are happy you're being touched. And if you don't mm. have that, then, uh, I think it's going to cause you pain. I think it's going to be very, hurtful and harmful all around and it'll come out in ways you least expect you know you'll get really pissed in line at the grocery store and and it'll it'll infiltrate parts of your personality and your character that you didn't even think were were relevant to your sexuality mm. but if you're not seen as as erotic by the one person who who promised to um you know uh, to value you in that light then then it's something that you should choose to to work on to to develop an erotic empathy for one another as as sexual beings and who are better off erotic beings. Mm, that's great. Um, yeah, I'm going to let that kind of, uh, I'm going to integrate that. That's lovely. That's, um, I'm really glad I asked that question. Okay, so I have one final question. Um, and, and this has been such a great conversation. And never in a million years when I started studying empathy, do I think I would uh, end up having a conversation about erotic empathy, but I'm so grateful we did. Um, you, you make me think about a memory. I was at a wedding, I don't remember whose, but like maybe 15 years ago. And the MC asked everybody in the room who was married to stand up. And then he said, okay, if you've been married under a year, sit down, under three years, sit down, under five years, sit down, under 10 years, 20. Okay. And so the last couple was standing and I was unmarried at the time. I wasn't even in a relationship or maybe I was with the guy that I was dating. I don't know. Anyways, I remember beelining it to this couple and I'm sure they'd been asked a gazillion times. So I was the cliche who came to them and said, okay, what's the secret sauce? You know, what's the secret to your success? And they had like their standard, like one was teasing and had an answer for each other. I remember what that little buzzy was about, but then they got serious and they said, give more than you take. And so I think part of what I'm sensing is that erotic empathy is really about being generous knowing that if the generosity is reciprocated, it's such a win-win, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that the kind of uh, one-liner I would say is the couples are great when each of them feels that they're the lucky one. Ah. And, and, and when you're each feeling lucky that the other added a little sprinkle of erotic empathy onto it, lucky that your partner wants you and you don't even get it, but it's cool. You're willing to receive. I think the act of receiving is just as generous as the act of giving. Being able to receive another person's feeling lucky that they're with you, that's that's erotic empathy. And receiving is a lot harder than giving. Because people at my funny the little little twin little tinge I had of um as you were talking about um give more than you receive, 
part of me says, no, 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 that's what too many people are doing in bed. You know, there's a lot of women out there giving blowjobs and, and, you know, oral sex that they feel is mandatory when they're not in the mood. That demotivates the desire to have sex because they're self-betraying. They're doing something that they're not really in the mood for because they feel they have to. So being generous is not it. It's about being attuned to yourself and knowing when to receive pleasure that you can't necessarily wrap your head around as desirable that allow your other person to feel lucky with you and do your best to focus your, your, you know, attention strategically so that you can enjoy so that you can be more open to receiving, you know, receiving is the act of being able to say thank you when somebody compliments you, you know, how hard that is for the average person. If somebody says, wow, you look great or you look well, you know, they're going to say, Oh, no, 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 no. I'll give you six reasons why they don't. So being able to just say thank you for saying that. I love that you just said that. I appreciate it. Can you think uh, of a time when you were on the receiving end of empathy? Could be uh, erotic empathy, but we can stay at a larger uh, scope too. And what that meant for you and how that made you feel. A few instances come to mind, actually. One in particular... um, this is one of those things where you said, if I don't want to say, have said this, I can tell you tomorrow. This may be one of those, but I'm going to say it anyway for now. So I've never said it aloud, I don't think. Um, I was once dating somebody in my early 20s when I was at the peak of uh, not a great relationship of body image with myself. Who at the beginning of kind of our beginning, you know, are starting to hook up a little bit. And and he goes and he um, takes the... I had this light that anyway, he takes a light off my night table off the table nearby and turns it on. Like he's literally like going into a cave. Okay. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Where are you going with that? What are you doing? And he was like, Oh, I want to, I want to, you know, introduce myself appropriately. And he was literally, and this is, this brought me to tears at the time. He just said, I want to know her. And he wanted to take a flashlight to my vulva and just touch around and say hello without actually immediately pursuing sexual pleasure. Like he, he was not just gonna, you know, um, aimlessly manually touch like we've all experienced for our whole lives where a person reaches down below and hopes to magically pleasure us without knowing anything about what we want. He was just experimenting what would feel, you know, with what's sensitive, what's not that sensitive. I don't know. And, and, and I was completely brought to tears that that was something that would excite him. And it has stuck with me my entire life, like so far. It really, it, it taught me maybe I'm worthy of being just looked at without giving him any immediate genital pleasure. That changed, um, that, that probably informs also some of the curiosity that I hope people experience. It was a very, very powerful instance of, uh, of erotic interest that I obviously had to empathize with in the moment, but that was a real, real generous gesture of, of open curiosity, you know, to, to imperfection, to whatever. Cause of course, you know, you don't plan for these things. It's not like I was quaffed for the occasion or whatever. I don't know, but it was all good. It was all good. And I think that that's a, that was that, you know, uh, that stands out. And there are many, of course, that also, um, a, a close, second or first um, or experiences where my own experience of trauma, you know, was needed to be empathized with if I had to stop 
for instance, um, in the middle or not begin when we'd sort of begun and those kinds of things where a person just um, would never would, would say, I, it doesn't matter that I'm aroused if you're not, if you're not present with me in this, then I'm like, let's just, you know, and then just sort of um, held me in a, in a really, really generous way. And um, I think safety is a very, very essential component of erotic connection, uh, particularly for women bodied folks. And um, uh, so those moments really, really stick with me too. The, uh, the fact that another person's, this is how I define sexual abuse actually, is when one person's well-being is less important than another person's arousal, then, you know, it's sexual abuse. And so when I knew that my well-being was, was certainly um, the priority over their arousal, then I, then I knew that I was safe. So yeah. That's, that's uh, I guess, that I chose to say right now. <laughs> Wow, Amanda, I have enjoyed every minute of this conversation, as I'm sure our listeners and viewers have. And again, we'll have all your information in the description below. Thank you so much for participating in a conversation with me. And we'll see you all next week uh, at Purposeful Empathy. Have a great one. What if you had access to your own council of coaches to help you break free from your thinking clutter, make that important decision, and liberate you from whatever is holding you back? At Grant Huron International, you get to select the coach of your choice anytime from any place. Visit GrantHuronInternational.com to harness the power of on-demand coaching today.